on August 23, 1973, Jan Erik Olsen was out on parole from prison. And he attempted to hold up a bank in Stockholm, um, Sweden. When the uh, police showed up, Olsen ended up taking four people as hostages. A standoff between Olsen and the police lasted for six days. At one point during the standoff, Olsen called um, Sweden's prime minister to say that he would kill the hostages. He put one of the hostages, Kristen Inmark, on the phone, and, and she said to the prime minister this. She says, I'm very disappointed in you. I think you're sitting here playing with our lives. <laughs> Despite Olsen's threats to kill her, Inmark had decided she felt safer with the bad guy than she did with the police. In fact, she wasn't the only one. Others, uh, hostages, actually resisted rescue attempts and later refused to testify against their captor. Some even raised money for his defense. <laughs> now, these days, whenever you hear of a, a news of a hostage who identifies more with their captors than with their rescuers, the condition has become uh, referred to as the Stockholm Syndrome. Many years after that incident in Stockholm, uh, Kristen Inmark summed up what had happened to her. She says, it's some kind of a context you get into when all of your, your values, the morals you have, they're, they're changed in some way. Amy went off to college last fall. She was active in her church. She came from a strong Christian home. The first week she got on campus, she uh, joined a sorority. The extracurricular activities and sports and, and parties caught Amy's attention, and she found life at that university uh, one great, exciting whirlwind of activities and relationships. When she returned home at the end of her first year, her parents said Amy had changed. She was a different person. Amy had been taken hostage by the world. Jim, a Christian businessman, did well in the company that he worked for and finally decided to go off on his own. The situation was, was perfect, and his business just, I mean, just took off. He began to make money, and he, he got all caught up in, in making more money, and soon he found that, well, he couldn't really make it to church on Sunday morning worship service, maybe just two times a month. And then several months after that, he wasn't even making it that often. His business made demands on him, he said. And oftentimes, he had to go play golf with his friends on Sunday mornings, or he had to, he had to go out of town. Soon, whenever his wife asked him about going to church, he just... He would just shut her down. He became critical of the church, saying, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites over there. They don't really know what it is to uh, live in the real world. <laughs> Jim had been taken hostage by the world. There's a story about a man like this in the Bible. Do you realize that? Um, 
when Paul was in Rome and in prison the very first time, he wrote um, several books. He mentioned that one of the men helping him there was a man by the name of Demas. He sent greetings from Demas, in fact, to all of his friends back to the church in uh, Colossae. Then Paul was released from prison, and we assume that Demas and others were part of his team as they traveled. In his second imprisonment, Paul wrote several books uh, as well, the last of which was his letter to Timothy, um, who happened to be one of Demas's uh, peers. Uh, <laughs> in the last chapter of 2 Timothy, the last paragraph that Paul ever wrote, as far as, as, far as we can tell, as far as we know, um, there was one tragic sentence. It says this, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas um, had been taken hostage by the world. See, the tragedy of the Stockholm Syndrome is that hostages, uh, their, their fear is gradually replaced with a love for the very enemy that enslaves them, and a very enemy that may well kill them. <laughs> Too oftentimes, what I have discovered is that similar syndrome has taken place in the church as well. The loyalty and desire we once had for Christ, we now <laughs> have for the world and its values. I invite you to turn with me to 1 John once again as we continue our, our study of 1 John um, and look at 1 John as we are in this series called Going Deeper. And as we have discovered here in John's first letter, this letter was written to believers, um, believers who were, uh, well, two or three generations removed from the historical uh, Jesus. And so they were asking a number of interesting questions. Among them was uh, the question of, how do I live out my faith in this world? <laughs> Is all this worldly stuff out there looks so exciting, looks so fun, that, that everyone, it looks like they're enjoying so much. Um, is that out there, is that all that world stuff, is that off limits for me? I mean, how can I live in this world without the world living in me? Or as we might ask this morning, how can we prevent ourselves from being taken hostage by the world. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at three verses this morning. Uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Let me read it for us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away with its, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. <laughs> John begins here, if you notice, he begins with a very stern warning. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. I mean, that's a command he's giving here. Um, it's given to us in the imperative mood. 
James, in his letter, which is of uh, equal length, five chapters, uses the imperative mood over 35 times in his letter. But John here, you, you catch it, John only uses the imperative mood 15 times here in 1 John. And this is one of them. He says, do not love the world. I mean, that's how serious he is. <laughs> so what we need to do is we need to then ask the, the follow-up question. Um, what exactly is this world that the Christian disciple is not to love? I mean, after all, right? Don't we find in John 3.16 the, the words uh, that we're supposed to, or that God loved the world? I mean, if God loved the world, then as his followers, are we to do anything less? So what does he mean here when John says, do not love the world? Well, I think it helps us uh, really to understand um, what John means by that word world. Um, the word John uses here in the Greek is the word cosmos. Um, and generally, there are a couple of different ways that, that world, uh, the word is used in, in scripture. Um, sometimes it refers to the created world, um, the earth, and to the people that in Habit the world. I mean, that's the way it is used in John 3.16. I mean, God loves the people who live on this planet. <laughs> um, it's also used, that word, uh, oftentimes in the Bible, it talks about God's world, God's creation as being good. Okay, so, so that's one way this word cosmos is used in Scripture. But here, John uses this with a second meaning, a more negative meaning. Um, it's used to describe the world apart from God, um, the earthly system of values and beliefs and behaviors that are in opposition to God. Um, this, word, uh, this world, as used in this, this second sense, is in, the, uh, is in the power of the evil one. In fact, John... Uh, in the same letter, reminds his readers, he says this, Listen, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, uh, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's talking about the evil one. So listen, if you're not quite understanding what John means here when he describes or uses this word world, uh, one of the best ways, I think, for us to understand it is maybe think in terms of Las Vegas. <laughs> um, you think in terms of Las Vegas, you might get the idea, okay? So that's what John means when he says, do not love the world. He gives us a stern warning. Then he follows it up with an observation. Look what he says here. Loving God and loving the world cannot coexist. Look at the second half of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, you can't have a foot in both worlds, <laughs> You can't say you love God and the deep life that he offers and at the same time be actively embracing um, you know, sinful values and, and, and lifestyles of the world. I mean, we've all known people who've tried to do that, right? I mean, it was the, it was the problem that we indicated with Amy and, and Jim and, and Demas. It was the problem that they had. Perhaps we've tried to do it at different times, Right? And you realize it, it, it doesn't work. Um, it's like trying to have one foot in a canoe and, and one foot on the dock. E eventually, you're going to have to throw yourself in one direction or the other. 
So here's the question. How can I know if I love the world or if I love God? Well, John suggests that we take a little self-test. We do a little um, introspection, a little self-examination. We ask ourselves the question, um, what are the deepest desires by which I live? And John identifies three worldly desires here. One commentator puts it, there are three rivals for the human heart. I like that. Another pastor described them as the desires to do, desires to have, and desires to be. I like that. I like that as well. I think it's helpful. Desires to do, desires to have, desires to be. So let's look at each one. Um, the first one is the desire to do. Um, John calls it the desires of the flesh. Some translations use the phrase lust of the flesh. Now, in, in the Greek, you have to understand, lust is a compound word which takes the normal word for desires and puts a little prefix in front of it that intensifies it, okay? So literally, this word um, desires or lust um, can be translated hyper-desire. That's the way it is with lust, right? It begins with a healthy desire, but it's taken to an unhealthy extreme. I mean, we must remember, I mean, we have to admit that there's nothing wrong with desire. I mean, most of our desires are God-given. We all have a desire to eat and to drink, to, to work, to, to play, to achieve. I mean, those are all natural desires that we have been given. But the world, see, what the world does is it takes those natural desires and perverts them and corrupts them and exaggerates them so they become unnatural and, and harmful. Eugene Peterson once said this. He says, every temptation that comes to me is packaged as a good. <laughs> so this first worldly desire that John warns us about is the desires of the flesh. Now, typically when we hear that word flesh, uh, we think John is talking exclusively about sexual sin. Um, but see, in, in the Bible, that term flesh um, is used for our humanity, so these desires of the flesh are, are much broader than just sexual sins. Um, John is describing the, um, the part of our nature that is, in fact, dominated by our senses. So we might label this desire to do as pleasure. Once again, we must remember there's nothing wrong with pleasure or with sensuality, right? In his wisdom and love, God has given us, what, taste buds? He's, he's given us eardrums. He's given us nerve endings so that we could all experience the world in a physical way, in a way that brings pleasure, right? I mean, biting in, think about it, in the fall, right? Biting into a Honeycrisp apple, wow. <laughs> I, and the, the feeling of a perfectly carved turn on a, on a ski slope. Wow, amazing, right? A hug from a grandma, a, a pat from a, from a friend, a kiss on the lips from someone you're crazy about. Wow. I mean, these feelings are good. And there's nothing wrong with them when they're experienced as God intended them to be experienced. But the problem comes, see, when those... Uh, when the world takes those desires and, and twists them into something that they were never meant to be. I mean, there's nothing wrong with food until we eat too much of it. 
there's nothing wrong with drink, um, alcohol or coffee, until it alters our behavior, until we can't live without it. There's nothing wrong with skiing <laughs> until it, it crowds God right out of your life. There's nothing wrong with a, a kiss on the lips as long as the person you're kissing is rightfully yours to kiss, and, and, and they're okay with it. <laughs> Listen, when the pursuit of pleasure takes over our lives, when it drives us to do things that are hurtful to ourselves or to others or to society then the world has gotten to us and eclipsed our love for our Father. When our desire to do is being shaped by our impulses and not by the Spirit of God, then we're walking in darkness, right? When in our pursuits of pleasure, we have become forgetful of, blind to the commandments of God, the standards of God, the very existence of God, then we have become slaves to our flesh's desires. Now, just as the flesh is a source of desire in this first rival, the human eyes, they're the source of the lust in the, in the second one, right? This is the desire to have. It's the, the desires of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. It's the desire that comes from observing things um, outside of us. We become captivated by outward appearances and toward objects. The worldly lust includes greed and materialism and, and envy. It's the inability to see anything or anyone without warning or without wanting it for ourselves as a, uh, as a security symbol. It, more and more and more and more and more and more. I mean, that's the cry of this hungry heart. If the desires of the flesh can be labeled pleasure, then this desire can be identified with the word possession. Possession. Again, there's nothing wrong with material things, whether they be clothes or houses or, or toys or tools, if God should provide the resources for them. The Bible never condemns anyone for desiring things or having things. No, we meet plenty of wealthy, godly people in Scripture, and Jesus had plenty of wealthy friends and acquaintances. But see, when you... Decide that you have to have a particular thing. When you're prepared to spend reckless amounts of money to get it, to, um, when your happiness or identity depends upon it, uh, when you want it just because someone else has it or, or just because it, the TV tells you that you have to have it, <laughs> then the desire has given way to lust. And having it has become more important than having God. See, when we have displaced Christ in our hearts with money and with the things it can buy or anything that, that cripples our primary relationship with the Lord and prevents Christ from being formed in us, that's the wrong kind of desires. The third worldly desire is desire um, to be, or as John puts it, the pride of life. I mean, that's the pursuit of success and achievement and entitlement and, and, and recognition. It's the boasting of what one has or what one does. It's the attitude of, of self-sufficiency and, and self-reliance. So let's just call this one pride. As in each of the others, there's nothing wrong with taking 
pride in a job well done or feeling good when you, you know, achieve a milestone or reveling in the affirmation of others when it's rightly deserved and received. I mean, God placed that desire within all of us to pursue excellence and, and, and make an impact and, and, and accomplish something. But see, when our pursuit of success compels us to bend the rules when we need to beat everyone else in order to feel good about ourselves, when we find our identity, our worth in our accomplishments, when we look down on others who haven't attained what we have, the people's approval has become more important to us than, than God's. And our soul is in peril. Chances are, my guess is, as you're listening to me, either online, here in person, Chances are that one of these three worldly desires poses a problem for you. Pleasure, possessions, pride. Maybe all three of them. <laughs> when any of these three begin to demand time or money or attention that rightfully belongs to God, when you are tempted to compromise your convictions or neglect people, then you are falling in love with the world. You're being taken hostage. Helmut Thickel tells the story of a child who was raising a frightful cry because he had shoved his hand into the opening of a very expensive Chinese vase and he couldn't pull it out again. Parents and neighbors, they tugged with might and main on the child's arm and, and the creature, the poor little creature, howled out loud all the, the, the while. Finally, there was nothing left to do but to break that beautiful, expensive vase. And then as the mournful heap of shards lay there, it became clear why the child was so helplessly stuck because his little fist grasped a paltry penny which he had spied in the bottom of the vase and which he and his child ignorance, ignorance would not let go. <laughs> Friends, can I tell you, too oftentimes, as Christians, we cry out and we say, listen, we want to go deeper. We want to go deeper in our spiritual life. We want to go deeper in our, in our relationship with God. We want to go deeper in our, in our prayer life only to find out that we are in childish ignorance refusing to let go of the things of this world. Our love and desire for God has been replaced with a greater desire for the world. You see, I got to tell you, the, the main problem here with these three desires is they're not enough. In fact, look with me at verse 17. Look what he says here again. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, the problem with pleasure and possessions and, and pride is that they will not last. In other words, the world is a bad investment, friends. Pleasure is fleeting. Possessions, they, they rust, right? They get broken. They, they lose their value. Earthly accomplishments, I mean, they're, they're soon forgotten or surpassed. I mean, everywhere you look, everything is running down or, or running out. 
These desires were never meant to satisfy us, but rather they were meant to point us to God. Pleasure, possessions, pride. They cannot satisfy the deep desires of our hearts. We're not just looking for pleasure. No, what we're really looking for is joy. We don't need more stuff. No, what we need more of is contentment, right? It's not achievements that we're after. It, it's significance. And these things can only be found ultimately and eternally in a relationship with God. Which is why John says, the one who does the will of God lives forever. According to C.S. Lewis, these desires to do, to have, to be, they are merely rumblings of a much deeper desire. It's a desire so deep, so profound, even Lewis couldn't find a word for it. (laughs) In his uh, book, The Weight of Glory, Lewis describes it as a scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never visited. It's a longing for every good and perfect thing all at once. It's a longing for God and and his kingdom. And until that deepest of all desires is satisfied, nothing else will be enough. As Augustine said, the human heart was made for God and our hearts are restless till we find rest in him. But see, once that desire is satisfied, once we have turned to God and aligned ourselves with his good and eternal purposes for our lives, we can experience earthly things as they were meant to be experienced in relationship with him. So listen, when you go out to dinner with your friends or go skiing in the mountains, you can praise God and and you can praise God for the ability you have to enjoy it. When you go out shopping for clothes or or, or for a new car, you can do it with wisdom and thankfulness as a good steward of God's money. As you pursue your career, you can do it in a way that, that, that brings glory to God and advances his purposes for your life and for the world. The world and its desires are passing away, John says, but the one who does the will of God lives. Catch that? lives forever. (laughs) And if you think this world has things to enjoy in it, you can't even imagine what's waiting for you in the life to come in that country we haven't visited yet, but we know it's there. We know it's to be true. So here's John's take-home idea this week. Simply this, don't be taken hostage by this world and its values. Instead, develop a deep desire for God and his will. Listen, in Greek mythology, ancient sailors faced many dangers at sea. One of the most unusual was that of the sirens who used their mesmerizing songs to lure sailors to their deaths on the rocky shores. Two famous Greeks were able to sail by them successfully. One was Odysseus, who uh, stopped up um, the ears of men with wax, (laughs) and then he had them tie him to the ship's mast. This way his men were safe, 
and he was able to hear the siren's sweet song with relatively little harm. The other was the legendary Orphus, um, who was sailing with Jason and the Agronauts. As they approached the sirens and began to hear the sirens' voices drift across the water, Orpheus took out his lyre and began to sing an even more charming melody to the men. Orpheus, not Odysseus, represents the success that you and I want. I mean, we can pass some of these tests that John gives us by restricting our bodies, that is, by being tied to the mast, or limiting our access to the temptations, that is, filling our ears with the wax. But in the end, the holy desires of our heart must rise and conquer. The desire to love and follow Jesus must be a sweeter song to us than the music of the world and of the flesh. So let me ask you, is that true of you? Is that true of you? Is your desire to love and follow Jesus a sweeter and deeper song to you than any earthly pleasure or possession or accomplishment? If so, I'd like to invite you to take the next steps, some steps toward the life in the days, weeks, in this next year to come that Christ might continue to be formed in each one of us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love, your grace. Thank you for your love which calls out to us. God, might our love for you grow. Might our desire for you grow deeper and deeper each day, each week, each month this next year. That the uh, songs of this world would become less and less attractive. That the desires that this world offers we might turn away and be able to just listen and follow you. God, I pray that for each one of us in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.